welcoming that, for putting your hands together. Mm. Thank you very thank much. You. We look forward to it. Thank you. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Great. Well, it's great to be here with you this evening, and um, thank you for that. Probably the longest introduction I've ever had um, before a talk. Um, so, uh, Rethink History is the title of the talk tonight. Um, what can history tell us about Jesus? And so I think this is a, a really important topic. Um, and I think, you know, one reason why it's such an important topic is because there is a huge amount out there uh, in the media and on the internet about um, this question of um, Jesus and can we know anything about him as a historical figure. And of course, you know, many of the loudest voices that we hear in, in the media and on the internet and so on are um, extremely sceptical about this, this question of whether we can know anything about Jesus. So um, Christopher Hitchens is probably a name that's familiar to you. Um, uh, he, he's passed away now, sadly, but Hitchens um, was a, a vociferous advocate of atheism. And in his book, uh, God is Not Great, he wrote that um, the contradictions and illiteracies of the New Testament have filled up many books by eminent scholars and have never been explained by any Christian authority except in the feeblest terms of metaphor and a Christ of faith. Uh, Michel Onfray was a, uh, or is a, a French philosopher, um, also a sort of proponent of the new atheism, and he too has written uh, very sceptically um, on this topic that <clears throat> Jesus' existence has not been historically established. Uh, no contemporary documentation of the event, no archaeological proof, nothing certain exists today. And so, you know, it's understandable that people... Um, who are being fed on a steady diet of these kinds of sentiments would conclude that, well, I guess it sounds like, you know, we can't really be sure if Jesus really existed even. But contrast these, what I would call sceptical soundbites, with sober scholarship. That's to say professional historians who specialize in the area of ancient history, and in particular in the study of the historical Jesus. And these are not just Christians. This includes atheists, agnostics, um, people who are from a Jewish background. Um, but you won't find a single um, professor of ancient history um, anywhere in the world, um, or of classics or biblical studies, who thinks that Jesus didn't exist. And so E.P. Sanders, who um, is fairly agnostic, really, about, say, whether Jesus rose from the dead, but E.P. Sanders really sums up the, the, the consensus of professional uh, historical scholarship on Jesus when he says that there are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus' life, when and where he lived, approximately when and where he died, and the sort of thing that he did during his public activity. And then Sanders goes on to give a fairly long list of um, what he terms near certain historical facts about Jesus. Um, facts where there is um, overwhelming evidence um, to give us confidence that these really are true of Jesus. And, and these would be things where there would be a, a broad consensus of mainstream, mainstream scholarship. Bart Ehrman, um, you may have heard of, um, because he often, um, you know, he, he comes, he's quite prominent in the media and so on. Um, and he, he comes across as a figure who's very sceptical about Christianity and the reliability of the New Testament. But at the same time, when he's kind of wearing his professional historian's hat, 
he, he says, you know, quite plainly, no serious historian doubts the existence of Jesus. We have more evidence for Jesus than for almost anyone of his time period. So contrasting these skeptical sound bites with sober scholarship, um, what's clear is, now I'm, I'm not saying that this in itself shows that Jesus existed, but it's worth listening to what the mainstream, the, the vast consensus of mainstream scholarship um, that actually studies the historical Jesus um, has concluded. Um, so now let's go on to look at some of the reasons that lead these scholars to these conclusions. So let's first consider, um, sort of stepping back a bit from Jesus, just more generally, what are historians looking for? Um, so when historians uh, have come across a, a source, that's to say a, a document that purports to tell of some events in the past um, or some particular figure in the past, what are they looking for to see whether they can trust this document? Um, let me suggest that there are at least three key things that they're looking for. So one is, is this source in a good position to know what happened? Is it written by someone who's writing within um, a short enough time after the events so that they would have access to reliable information about what happened? Um, and, you know, as I said, that, that's going to have quite a lot to do with chronology and how far after um, the events it was written. Another thing that historians are very concerned with is when we look at this source and we see the way that it depicts the time and place where the events are set, does it depict a world that we know independently from other sources and from archaeology? Does, it, does this fit with that world? Um, so, um, yeah, this is where things like archaeological discoveries are very relevant. Um, does it sort of uh, capture the feel of what it was like to live in that time and place accurately? Or does it make all sorts of mistakes? You know, so if it depicts a, a battle in medieval Europe, um, and this source says that they were using crossbows, but we know from archaeology that they didn't use crossbows in medieval Europe. Well, then we would say, well, this source doesn't seem to fit all that well with what we know about the time and place. And then a third um, issue is, are there other independent sources, that's to say that weren't copied from each other, which corroborate the core um, events and themes, if you like? Um, and it's not crucial, or, or in fact, historians would actually expect to see these sources differing on minor details. They might even contradict each other, but that doesn't trouble historians. In fact, it's what they expect to see. But if these different sources that are not copied from each other are testing the same core, the same gist, then that gives a high degree of confidence that the core uh, events really did happen. So let's kind of take this... Um, these sort of considerations and see how they play out when we uh, turn to the sources about Jesus. So the first thing to say is, so pertaining to the question of are these sources in a, a good position to know uh, the facts, um, we can make some comparisons. Now sometimes people say, oh well, there were no sources that were written you know, right at the time when Jesus was uh, going around with his ministry. Um, and that's true. Um, and yet, at the same time, ancient historians are not remotely troubled by this because it's very normal to have a, a, a time gap of sometimes many decades before the earliest written sources. So, Alexander the Great, 
a very important figure in ancient history. Um, <clears throat> the earliest sources that we have that have survived, um, uh, the, the biography written or biographical details written by Polybius, um, 120 years after the events of Alexander the Great's life. So that's, we would think, well, that's a huge time gap. But actually, uh, ancient historians are confident that we can know lots of pretty concrete information about Alexander the Great. The Emperor Tiberius was the emperor of um, the Roman Emperor at the time that Jesus was crucified. <clears throat> the earliest written source that we have that talks about Tiberius in any detail uh, is um, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, and this is 77 years after Tiberius's life. Um, but again, ancient historians are confident that we can know a lot about Tiberius. So when we come to Jesus, the time gap's much smaller. As we'll see shortly, the, the earliest sources about Jesus are written 20 years after uh, Jesus' ministry and his crucifixion. So that's actually, relatively speaking, a very small time gap. Um, and then all of the New Testament sources, that includes all of the Gospels and all of the letters, are written within 65 years. Um, and now you, you might want to ask about what about other Gospels that aren't in the New Testament. For now, I'll just say very briefly, they're all written much, much later, and none of them really fit at all well with the time period and place. And so <clears throat> uh, even non-Christian historians don't regard those other Gospels as good sources of information about Jesus. But we can come back to that if you like. Um, the Gospels are very well rooted in their first century Palestinian Jewish setting. So, you know, we're talking about um, historians want to see that the, the way that the, a source depicts the world is accurate to what we know from archaeology. And there are many striking ways in which the Gospels, the, the accounts about Jesus' life, get all sorts of details right about first century Palestine uh, that we can know from archaeology and so on. And let me just give you a few examples. Um, they have accurate knowledge of the places. Um, so this picture at the top is um, the Pool of Bethesda, which is in Jerusalem. Now, in John's Gospel, um, in chapter 5, it says that uh, near the Sheep Gate, there's a pool called Bethesda, uh, which has five porticos, five sort of arches. Um, now, for, for a while, scholars in the early 20th century thought well, you know, maybe John's just making this up because it's sort of symbolic, uh, five arches, you know, it's like the five books of the law in the Old Testament and so on. But then in 1956, the Pool of Bethesda was excavated um, and it matches the description in John's detail, uh, in John's gospel in remarkable detail. So it has the five porticos or the remains of five porticos, which was actually kind of unusual because most of these pools had four porticos, but this one had five. Um, it is indeed near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, and there's, there's other details besides that which fit very accurately. And more generally, um, most of the places which are described in the Gospels have been studied by archaeologists now, um, and, and they fit extremely well with um, the details that have been uncovered by those archaeological excavations. And so, the picture is that the Gospels, um, that the authors of the Gospels uh, are very familiar with the geography of uh, first century Israel. 
Um, and what's more, they're familiar with the way it was before it was all destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. Um, the, bottom, the photos at the bottom are of uh, the town of Capernaum. So Capernaum is on the, the sort of northwest uh, shore of the Lake of Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of time during his ministry. And again, the details um, that have been sort of unearthed in Capernaum fit very well with the way that the Gospels describe it. So Capernaum has a harbour <clears throat> and there's evidence of a fish trade, which fits with the fact that Jesus, you know, some of his disciples were fishermen and they seem to practice their fishing trade around that area. Uh, there's a synagogue, which fits with the fact that Jesus is said to have preached in the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, there's a Roman garrison, um, which is interesting because we're told in uh, Matthew and Luke's Gospels that Jesus healed the servant uh, of a centurion in Capernaum. And Roman centurions wouldn't just have been in any old uh, town in Galilee, but Capernaum evidently had a Roman garrison, so it would make sense for there to be a centurion there. And believe it or not, um, archaeologists are very confident that they've even discovered the house of Peter, um, the disciple of Jesus. Uh, that's the picture on the bottom right. Um, and the reason they're confident uh, that it is Peter's house has to do with the age of the building, the fact that it was used as a church from, uh, from the first century and it has the right kind of graffiti. Um, so the, the, the world depicted by the Gospels is very accurate to what we know from archaeology. Um, the Gospels also reflect an accurate um, knowledge of, of the kind of feel of everyday life. Um, in ancient Jewish Palestine. So just to give you a few examples, so that this um, on the top left is a, a fishing boat which was discovered <clears throat> when the tides were very low uh, in the Sea of Galilee. Um, and it's a first century fishing boat, so from around the time of Jesus. Um, and the, the various details of, um, of the construction of this fishing boat and the size of it and so on again, fit really well with the descriptions in the Gospels of the kind of boat that Jesus sort of went back and forth across the lake in with his disciples. Um, this picture at the bottom is of uh, a heel bone of a crucified man from, from the first century. And this is important for a number of reasons. So um, for one thing, it, it confirms that uh, even crucifixion victims um, because crucifixion was reserved for kind of uh, rebels and slaves. Um, it, not even a Roman, no Roman citizen could be subjected to it. But um, even crucifixion victims were given a proper burial because this, um, these bones were found in an, an Austria, a burial box um, where Jews were um, given a proper burial. <clears throat> it also confirms that the Romans did indeed use nails to nail people to crosses, um, as is described of Jesus in the Gospels. And then on the right, this is a, the, this is a tomb cut out of rock. Um, and if you recall in the Gospels, the description of the burial that's given to Jesus after his crucifixion is that he's placed in a tomb cut out of rock uh, with a door where a stone would be rolled across the entrance. And, and we have found tombs just like that. Um, so again, just builds up this picture that the, the Gospels are very well rooted in their, their time and place. Um, and contrasting this with the apocryphal Gospels that are not in the New Testament, where they, 
when they do try to venture details, they, they invariably kind of make all sorts of mistakes. So it's, it's actually not easy to get this stuff right. And this all speaks to the fact that the authors of these Gospels had good access to uh, reliable information. Now here's a, a striking discovery that's been made in the last few years. So um, this um, right here is called an ossuary. I've mentioned that already briefly. So um, the way that um, Jews in the first century would bury the dead um, <clears throat> was a sort of two-stage process. So first they'd bury them in a, a cave tomb, and then about a year later when the flesh is all decayed, they would gather up the bones and put them in a, an ossuary, a bone box. And very often they would engrave the person's name onto the side of the bone box. And so um, archaeologists have found hundreds of these bone boxes. And um, this has enabled them to build up a kind of database of personal names that people had in first century Palestine. Um, so uh, a Jewish archaeologist called Talalan has compiled uh, a database of about 3,000 personal names of Jewish people who lived uh, in ancient Israel around the time of Jesus. And this is really cool because you can start to build up a sense of, okay, what are the most common names? What are the rare names? Um, what proportion of the men were called Simon? What proportion of the men were called Jesus? What proportion of the women were called Mary? And so on. And then what we can actually do with that is compare it to the Gospels, where there are about 100 different named Jewish individuals. Um, and we can say, um, let's look at the percentage of the men in this archaeologist database that are called Simon and compare it to the Gospels. And what we find is a really striking match. So, you know, just for instance, uh, the name Simon, um, in this archaeologist database, 9.3% of the men are called Simon. It's the most common name for men. Uh, in the Gospels and Acts, um, out of the, the hundred or so named characters, um, it's the mo Simon is also the most common male name. It's about 10% of the men. <clears throat> and so on, going down the list, and you can see. Um, the, obviously, the matches are not perfect, but they're pretty good. Um, and certainly, this is not something that any Gospel author could have contrived to make up. There's no way they had access to the kind of survey data that we do to see what the percentages are of the different names. Uh, there's no way that they could have concocted things to get this very striking match. And so uh, what this strongly suggests is that all of the uh, named characters in, in the Gospels and Acts, uh, these were real people. Um, because you wouldn't be able to fabricate these, um, these accurate sort of patterns of personal names uh, just by kind of inventing them. Um, and then there's the fact that uh, there are multiple independent sources. Um, so we've talked about, you know, uh, were the sources in a good position to know how long after the events were they written? <clears throat> how well do they fit with the world? And I've suggested they seem to fit very well indeed. And then there's the fact that what we have um, in the New Testament, despite the fact that in modern Bibles it's all bound under one cover, um, actually there are multiple independent sources there which have not been copied from one another. So these are the, the various sources that historians generally recognize as being separate sources from each other. 
So we have Paul's letters. Um, we'll talk more about those in a moment. <clears throat> Paul's letters are a very important source, uh, probably the earliest sources in the New Testament. Uh, the letter of James, the brother of Jesus, um, also an important source, probably written within about 30 years. Um, then we have the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Um, now, the way historians divide up the sources there is not in terms of Matthew is one, Mark is two, Luke is three, but rather in terms of the sources which uh, historians think compose these, uh, these Gospels. So Mark's Gospel is generally thought to be the earliest Gospel to be written. And then it's pretty clear that Matthew and Luke have both used Mark as a source fairly extensively. Um, but then Ma Matthew and Luke both have some material that they share in common with each other that they don't get from Mark. And it seems to be um, a shared uh, common source that was prior to either Matthew or Luke writing. Uh, and most historians think that this, this source um, did indeed exist um, and it's designated as Q. Um, and then Luke has a substantial amount of material that's unique to his gospel, uh, as does Matthew. And then John's gospel is typically thought to be independent, again, from the other three gospels. Uh, and then we have some important non-Christian sources that we'll look at in a moment, uh, Josephus and Tacitus. Now, there's actually uh, up to 11 mentions of Jesus in non-Christian ancient sources. <clears throat> And I'm just going to highlight some of the most important ones. Um, but the key thing here is the, these sources, um, which are independent, um, nonetheless attest uh, the same kind of core of events um, and th themes, if you like. And so let's just have a look at this a bit more closely. Um, so Bart Ehrman, remember this, you know, seemingly fairly sceptical scholar, certainly not a fan of Christianity. But Bart Ehrman nonetheless admits these sources are independent of one another. They were written in different places, yet many of them, independent though they be, agree on many of the basic aspects of Jesus' life uh, and death. <clears throat> he was a Jewish teacher of Palestine who was crucified on order of Pontius Pilate, for example. Uh, these sources could not have been dreamed up independently of one another by Christians all over the map because they agree on too many of the fundamentals. So Ehrman thinks, you know, even though he thinks that these sources, you know, differ from each other on some of the details, and he's, you know, made a big deal about that, nonetheless he agrees that they, uh, these sources agree on the fundamentals, on the core story of Jesus. Uh, Dale Allison is a, a towering figure in the field of historical Jesus studies. Uh, also comes across as kind of quite sceptical about some of the details, but nonetheless, uh, he says this, <clears throat> the first century traditions about Jesus are not an amorphous mess. On the contrary, certain themes and motifs recur again and again throughout the primary sources. And it must be in those themes and motifs, which taken together leave some distinct impressions, that we will find memory. So what Alison is saying is that the, you know, when we have these multiple independent sources, the thing that we can be really confident of is if we get some kind of motif or theme where, um, coming up again and again, um, what we should you know, look to to have the, the most confidence 
as historians, he says, are the, is where we get the same gist coming up again and again. And he thinks that that is indeed what we find uh, in our um, ancient sources about Jesus. And so let's just have a look at some of those uh, kind of core themes that come up again and again across our, our earliest sources about Jesus. Um, so one is that Jesus taught an ethic of radical forgiveness and love of enemies. <clears throat> um, and he didn't just teach it, but he actually embodied it as well. And this comes up in terms of things Jesus says, you know, turn the other cheek. Uh, but it also comes up in terms of the way Jesus behaves towards his enemies. Um, the people who arrest him, put him on trial and crucify him. He doesn't violently resist them, um, but rather he prays for them and so on. <clears throat> Um, he tells parables like the, the story of the Good Samaritan. And so the, the, the same gist keeps coming up again and again so that we can have high degree of confidence that that core aspect of Jesus's ministry uh, was real, namely that Jesus taught and embodied this ethic of radical forgiveness and love of enemies. Um, and so uh, James Dunn, who's a very eminent scholar in the field, kind of sums up the consensus here when he says, we can be confident that it was Jesus's teaching which resulted in the importance according to loving, accorded to loving one's neighbor in the Jesus tradition and in earliest Christianity. A further mark of the love for which Jesus called is the readiness to forgive. Um, another sort of motif that comes up again and again in the earliest sources about Jesus is that Jesus was a healer. Um, Jesus performed healings um, that his contemporaries were very impressed by and viewed as miraculous. Now, it may come as a surprise to you to learn that um, scholars pretty much across the board, including atheists and agnostics, um, agree that Jesus healed people. Now, of course, the atheists and agnostics will be inclined to say, like, we don't really know what the mechanism was, or maybe it was psychosomatic. But the thing that no one uh, denies is that Jesus did indeed perform healings, uh, which astonished uh, his contemporaries. <coughs> and so Rudolf Bultmann, uh, who was a German scholar in the 20th century, and, you know, was very kind of skeptical about much of uh, much of the New Testament, nonetheless admits that there can be no doubt that Jesus did the kinds of deeds which were miracles to his mind and to the minds of his contemporaries. <clears throat> <clears throat> A third kind of motif or theme which recurs throughout the earlier source, sources on Jesus is that Jesus thought of himself as far more than a prophet. Um, so this comes up in terms of things Jesus says about himself, in terms of things other people say about him, and in terms of some of his key actions, <clears throat> um, like claiming to sort of have the authority to drive people out of the temple who are selling, um, or riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, and uh, the fact that his pla the placard above his cross, which sort of read the charges on which he'd been crucified, said that, you know, effectively he was being crucified for claiming to be a king of some sort. Um, and so E.P. Sanders, um, who I I've mentioned already, um, this very kind of prominent scholar in the field of historical Jesus studies, uh, again kind of sums up the consensus here 
And he says that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Um, he was executed as a would-be king, and his disciples, after his death, expected him to return to establish the kingdom. These points are historically indisputable. We should, I think, accept the obvious. Jesus taught his disciples that he himself would play the principal role in the kingdom of God. So what Sanders is saying is we have all these various ways in which um, this, this idea that Jesus is claiming to be some kind of king um, <clears throat> is manifesting in all sorts of ways in his ministry. Um, and the only real explanation is that Jesus must himself have made this claim. So Jesus didn't think he was just one more prophet in the line of Israelite prophets. Uh, Jesus taught about the, the kingdom of God that had arrived, um, not a kingdom of violence, but a kingdom where enemies were to be loved. Um, but Jesus evidently didn't think he was just announcing the kingdom. Uh, he clearly thought that he was going to play the starring role <clears throat> in the kingdom of God. Um, okay, so let's just briefly zoom in on a couple of these uh, sources. So Paul's letters... Um, as I said, are a very important source. Um, one reason is that they're written within a very short time after the events, 20 to 30 years, when the eyewitnesses would have still been active. And the other thing is um, that all historians agree that Paul personally knew several of the key eyewitnesses. Um, Paul talks um, about meeting James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. And so it's clear that Paul would have had excellent opportunities to check the facts. Um, and the other thing is that Paul's letters are not really sort of about just listing facts about the historical Jesus. He's writing to people who have already been converted and have already been taught about Jesus. And so what he just kind of throws out these little remarks in passing where the, pe the readers are expected to be completely familiar with this stuff, um, which kind of makes them even more valuable. So... <clears throat> Here's just some of the things that we could know about Jesus if we only had Paul's letters and we didn't have the Gospels at all. Um, so we could know that Jesus was Jewish. Um, we'd know that he had brothers, one called James. Um, we'd know about the 12 disciples and that Peter had some kind of special prominent role in that group of 12. Uh, we'd know that Jesus focused especially on Israel rather than the Gentiles in his ministry. Um, we'd know that Jesus had a reputation for performing signs and wonders, um, which is implied by several things Paul says, <clears throat> and that the core of Jesus' ethical teaching was love for one another. Uh, we would know that Jesus said that he would return again in glory, um, and that his followers believed him to be the Jewish Messiah. Uh, we'd know about the Last Supper, uh, because Paul mentions um, even the words that Jesus spoke over the bread and wine, talking about it as his body and blood, um, and that he was betrayed by someone. And then we'd know that Jesus was executed by Roman crucifixion and that he was buried in a tomb rather than just being left out to rot. Um, and we'd know that his earliest followers, um, his disciples, believed that the risen Jesus appeared to them, uh, including um, an appearance to Peter and the 12 disciples. Um, and we'd also know that his earliest followers worshipped him as the Lord, um, these followers being monotheistic Jews. Um, okay, so let's have a look briefly at uh, some of these non-Christian ancient sources. 
So Josephus was uh, a Jewish historian writing towards the end of the first century. Um, and he makes some fairly kind of brief passing remarks about Jesus, but nonetheless that, can, that sort of fit very well with what we know about Jesus from the New Testament. Um, and this is a version of the text of Josephus that's had bits taken out that scholars think were added by a Christian scribe. But nonetheless, they're pretty confident that we can get back to what Josephus himself probably wrote. And he says that about this time uh, there was Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of surprising works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to himself both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had him condemned to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for they reported that he appeared alive to them. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Um, we have Tacitus as well, who is uh, a Roman historian <clears throat> writing in the early second century. And he's writing about some events that happened in the middle of the second century where there were lots of Christians in Rome and the Empress kind of turned on the Christians in Rome as a scapegoat, the Emperor Nero. And there were some severe kind of sort of state-backed persecutions of the Christians. And in explaining this, Tacitus makes a, a brief reference to Jesus. And he says, Christus, from whom the name Christian had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, which is crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Um, we also have this letter from Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor in, in the early 2nd century, who was writing to the emperor, um, which was Trajan at the time, uh, basically asking the emperor for, for advice on how he should deal with the Christians um, who were growing very rapidly in his province. Um, and in his report to the emperor, he says that the Christians were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Uh, and so this is interesting because it's um, a, a mention from a non-Christian source outside the New Testament early on, uh, attesting the fact that the, the early Christians worshipped Jesus as a God. And so from these earliest non-Christian ancient sources, um, you know, imagine if we didn't have the New Testament at all, but still, just from these ancient non-Christian sources, we could still know the outline of Jesus's life. So we would know that Jesus was known as a moral teacher and wise man. Uh, we'd know about his reputation as a miracle worker, um, that his followers believed him to be the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. Um, we'd know that he was condemned to death on a cross <clears throat> under the authority of Pontius Pilate. Um, and the Jewish chief priests were somehow involved in that too. Um, we'd know that the movement that he founded stopped temporarily after his death, but it quickly resumed again, and that his followers were making this claim that he had appeared to them alive again. Uh, we'd know that the Christian movement grew very quickly in Judea and soon spread as far as Rome. Uh, we'd know that the Christians were subjected to violent persecution early on, and that they would meet on a fixed day to worship Jesus together. So and 
if you think about it, that's quite striking. We could know all of this stuff about Jesus, even if we didn't have any of the New Testament sources at all. And it broadly all kind of corroborates the outline of the story of Jesus that we get from the New Testament. So um, I've tried to suggest that, um, you know, historians are looking for uh, sources that are written within a relatively short time period after the events um, and that are in a good position to know the facts. Um, sources which show uh, kind of a really good fit between the way the sort of world they depict and, and what we know from archaeology and so on. And also that there are multiple independent sources that corroborate the core events. Um, and I've just kind of tried to give you a flavour of why you know, the broad sweep of mainstream scholarship, not just Christian scholars, but scholars including agnostics and atheists, um, uh, are broadly agreed that the core story of Jesus is historically solid. Um, and, um, you know, I've suggested that the, the, even the details of the New Testament seem to be uh, broadly accurate um, in the way that they depict places very accurately and they, they're very familiar with all kinds of customs and just the, the general sort of character of life in first century Israel. And so um, I guess, you know, I'd like to encourage you to sort of pick up a New Testament for yourself and, and just read it with in mind, you know, this thought that this is kind of real history we're looking at here. Um, and for me, this was something very important when I became a Christian at the age of 19. Um, coming to sort of have a sense that actually, you know, there is a real kind of historically robust story here uh, was very important for me <clears throat> in coming to make that step towards following Jesus. Um, so I don't know um, where you find yourselves tonight. Um, you know, some of you may have loads more questions and, and all sorts of kind of things that you want to think about more. Um, some of you uh, may already be following Jesus. Um, there may be some of you who um, are really kind of intrigued and are sort of on, you know, really thinking about taking that step. Um, so all of you should have these cards um, on your, under your seats. And so we would love it if you could just kind of indicate um, <clears throat> either, you know, that you would like to you know, talk more about this. So, t you know, you can t tell me more. Um, or you may w want to say, you know, count me in, um, which is to say um, you find that you would really like to kind of take this step towards following Jesus. Um, and so, um, you know, if, uh, as I said, you'll probably find yourself in a number of different kind of places on this. Um, for those of you who are thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of really compelled by uh, this story of Jesus and I would like to know Jesus for myself. Um, so if you don't mind, um, I would just like to kind of say a short prayer. And if you feel comfortable, you don't have to do this at all. But if you feel comfortable, you might just want to kind of echo it um, in your own head. Um, so if you, you know, maybe just kind of close your eyes to give each other some privacy. Um, and it's really a simple prayer that just basically says, um, <clears throat> thank you, sorry, and please. Um, so, um, dear God, um, thank you so much that you um, created this world. Thank you that you gave me my life. Um, 
God, thank you that you sent Jesus into the world and that you left behind a really good record of Jesus' life um, and the things he did and said. Um, thank you that we can trust in the record of Jesus that you've left us. Um, and thank you that it's not just a historical story, but that it's actually a, something that's for today and that you, Jesus is alive and wants to be uh, in a relationship with us. Um, God, I'm sorry for the ways in which I've um, fallen short of uh, the life that you intended for me. Um, please come into my life and um, please <coughs> help me to come to know you. Amen.